Hi, and welcome to episode 156 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Dr. Marielle Mitchell joining us. Upon discovering what orofacial myofunctional therapy had to offer, Dr. Marielle was blown away, combining it with the framework she already had learned as an OT with expertise in feeding, swallowing, cranial nerve integration, and sensory processing, OMT opened new doors for treatment. As soon as she started implementing her combined framework, her outcomes improved and she became the go-to expert on tongue tie release, long-standing sensory issues, and ongoing swallowing and feeding difficulties. Her passion for OT and OMT comes from her experience as a child experiencing underlying issues that never got recognized or addressed until adulthood. She feels so fortunate to have had access to knowledge so few people know about. It's completely transformed her life and her treatment methods. She strives to find and connect the missing dots between oral rest posture, sensory processing, the nervous system, sleep, cranial nerve dysfunction, swallowing, and feeding. These various facets of the human experience impact daily function much more than people realize, and Dr. Marielle is excited to be a pioneer in the field to bring these issues to life. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Mary Ellie, welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to chat today. Me too. Thank you for having me. It's so nice talking to you always. Of course. So we're going to talk a little bit about the change in the CDC guidelines. I know I've already spent a good chunk of time discussing, you know, that the speech pathology side of things from, you know, both a language, pragmatic, social skill, and also, um, semi-feeding oral motor background, but we're going to definitely dive into your side of the motor conversation today. So I'm going to turn it over to you and let you, I want to know, like, what was your knee-jerk reaction when you first saw these changes? Like what stood out to you the most? Yeah. So for me as an occupational therapist, right. I just really was shocked to see that crawling was completely like removed from the CDC guidelines and from the milestones. Like it was just really shocking because I feel like that's a milestone that's so critical it's not really optional and I feel like it's really dismissing the importance of that there are so many benefits to crawling that we really don't get as another opportunity to like do these types of neural connections later in life this is the one time that we're actually on all fours this is when the hands are on the ground this is the only time that you're really doing that unless you're as you should be crawling and climbing up trees as a kid and all that kind of stuff but our we all know that our kids don't really have those opportunities as much now because of you know not living in green spaces etc but the fact that crawling was removed I feel is a huge disservice because that is one of the main precursors for me at least as an occupational therapist and obviously the kids who come into my office are already coming in because there's some type of issue going on um it's such a foundational piece for laterality which means knowing your left from right and knowing the center of your body and that is a foundational skill for handwriting and also for reading and as much as people are saying like oh kids don't need to be able to like write anymore it's not a thing and I'm like okay well typing is still a bilateral activity zipping your pants is still a bilateral activity like opening your water bottle is still a bilateral activity and it's just so 
Um, it's disheartening to see that because I feel like the quality of children's development is going to plummet pretty rapidly as it already is, is kind of doing that. And I don't think we just like de-evolutionize as a species overnight. And I just, um, I think with the wording being as well intended to be like, oh, we're going to screen people better this way. I actually don't think that's really the case. I think more kids are going to fall through the cracks. I think it's going to give a lot of parents this lackadaisical approach and pediatricians who are going to be like, oh yeah, it's fine. It's actually not important anymore. Like, don't worry about it, but medically it makes absolutely no sense to me. Um, and the benefits of crawling are so vast from a neurological perspective, just how you just even the other one that they, you know, delayed sitting up, right. Then now they keep, now they're able to prop themselves and they should have been sitting independently at six months. Now, how is that going to affect feeding a whole nother thing to talk about? Right. But when a child is sitting up, right? Then they're going to cross midline. They're going to like rotate their trunk. They're going to fire their obliques. When they cross their midline, that's where they start to go crawling. The kids who aren't going to do that are going to only move in one plane of movement. And then they're going to just start pulling up to stand when they don't cross midline, that like lack of, um, integration for their midline is really going to affect, like I was talking about laterality from before, and that's going to impact so much of their coordination. Their eyes are going to have trouble going left to right not only in their eyes, but also from a feeding perspective, just to like, so we can bring it back to like myo tube, like the tongue is going to have a hard time lateralizing. Right. Cause like we've talked about before, like what you want are the lips, you get in the hips. And if the mouth is the one body part that the kid can't see. And when they have to rely solely on sensory perception for this single muscle in their mouth, but their body's never really done that left to right movement that's really going to be tricky when you throw a piece of food in there. And I think that they're not really looking at the ripple effect that this can do. So crawling was the major, like, what, why, like how, like, no, please. Like, this is like our last saving grace, like primitive reflex integration is a whole nother component of it. And just musculoskeletal wise too. Like, you know, when kids are delayed or they have specific diagnoses, like downs and things like that, when they obviously have delayed uh, milestones, their hands are typically flatter. Right. And if you look at our hands, we have this like palm, this like curvature in our palms, that's from crawling. That's from weight bearing the same with our feet. When you have flat feet, you are or your feet are pronated. I'm not a physical therapist, but I can observe this. Like you're going to have your, a lack of an arch, that lack of arch is going to mess up with the alignment that the joints are going to be as stable and you're not going to be able to really like balance on these things. And for your hands, you're not going to be able to grip things as easily. Imagine like a board trying to wrap around like a cup. And I just feel like there's huge, huge, huge ripple effects that people are kind of dismissing with this and kind of almost like excusing, um, you know, a delay, that's something that would be common to make it normal. And I just think that that's not, I, I really am against the, um, I, yeah, just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. I don't think that's right. The standard of a human is a standard of a human. We're not just like revolutionizing, like revolutionizing, like human anatomy either. I mean, it's kind of crazy because people are like being born with less wisdom teeth, which is, I don't know about that. That means our mandibles are just going to recede some more. Our skulls are going to shrink and our brains are going to shrink. And I'm like, what is happening? So (laughs) yeah, Yeah, no, that's a conversation that we've been having, um, recently about how like we are evolving into having more narrower skulls, you know, our, our jaws are smaller or yeah, that's, and it's interesting. It's an interesting conversation, especially as we focus on airway, because you and I know that you want these beautifully wide palates and we want aligned palates. We want the tongue up in the palate. We want the body to really form itself right in utero. And that, that goes back to in utero because 
if we want to even tie that into swallowing, we know that by 12 and a half weeks in utero, we we're swallowing the baby that fetus is swallowing. And so at the end of that first trimester, you basically have that swallow that you're going to have going forward, unless somebody intervenes and changes that, whether that's therapeutically or something else happens, but a lot of these, and that's why, you know, I think it's such a fascinating topic too, because parents will say, well, what did I do wrong? Or did something happen or no, nothing happened. This, this is how things evolved in utero. And if the tongue wasn't up in the palate while the palate was being formed and, you know, that's, that's going to impact what the palate looks like at birth. It's not like this happens overnight. And then, you know, can we change it during the first year? Sure. We have seen instances where we absolutely can change the shape of the palate. We can get that tongue up there. We can help it shape around the tongue because those, you know, suture lines are still so open, but there is a point where it becomes really hard to do it. And then, you know, and I, for me, and at least in my practice, I've seen that usually before six months of age, we might be able to do that. But after six months of age, six months of age, it becomes a lot more challenging. And then we're usually looking at earlier, you know, orthodontics, if we can around two years of age, when the two-year molars come in and so on and so forth. So I know I went on a whole different tangent, but I think <laughs> it's such an interesting conversation because people just see something like crawling removed from a milestone guide. And then, you know, we're all over here up in arms. Cause as an SLP, I saw that. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> and I know from Mia, you know, from my now four-year-old and I've shared this on the podcast before. And I was telling you before we recorded, you know, she, she's now four, but when she was born with a tongue and lip tie, mm-hmm. we had them addressed when she was five days old, the feeding immediately improved. But, you know, I was also working with her. I was in her mouth doing, you know, doing, um, exercises to make sure doing active wound care, but then also doing some oral motor exercises with her to make sure that everything healed properly. And she did have proper function. And, you know, I was very grateful that I had that skill and that ability to do that with her. But then I noticed that just like my first daughter, she was tight, right? She had tight muscles and I was monitoring this because, you know, she was on track with her milestones and everything. Mm-hmm. But then she was also the baby who flipped over early and who wanted to sleep on her belly. Both of my kids were belly sleepers and she didn't have her butt up in the air like Lily did. So it wasn't as much of an airway concern as Lily was, which I now, now know years later. Um, but you know, I took her to PT because I was like, I'm concerned. Like if she's this tight, the interesting thing was Lily was super tight. And I think it, I joke, it benefited her because she was an early crawler. She was an early, that kid at six months of age was crawling up the stairs. And at seven, seven months of age, she was crawling down the stairs. And I was, and yeah, because I showed her once how to get up and down, not on the stairs. I showed her on our deck on a low piece of like furniture. I showed her how to crawl up. I just, taught her the motor pattern by like helping her move yeah. as she was moving. Uh-huh. She got up, she got down and it, like, we were like, oh my gosh, put up the gates. Like, <laughs> what just happened? And then I was like, I was like, I'm kind of sorry that I taught her that so early, <laughs> but she like in little gym, even like people were like, how, how old is she? And I was like, nine months. I mean, she was like crawling up independently up the rock wall, flipping herself around, sitting on her bottom and going down the slide on the other side of the rock wall. And then hanging, she was like, she was so tight that she would just hang from the parallel bars for like a minute and a half. And people were like, I've never seen this. And I'm like, my child is a freak of nature. <laughs> I don't know what to do with her. And as a mom, I was like, I didn't know. I'm like, I don't think this is normal, but we're just going to, we're just going to run with it. Meanwhile, Mia was the complete opposite. Like we released yeah. her t- and Lily still had a tongue tie. She was still very tight, you know, all like 
feeding stuff at that point. But Nia, she seemed to be like always on the cusp of just hitting her milestones and she seemed tight. So I took her to a PT and who in like early intervention PT, private pay mm-hmm. and everything, like really good reputation. And it seemed like we were just kind of constantly keeping her just at the cusp of not missing a milestone. That's kind of what it felt like. And what I also learned was we were constantly forcing her, her knee down. We were trying, we were basically trying to force against, we were going against the grain, right? Instead of going with it, we were going against it. And I later learned from working with some of my PRI trained PTs that no, no, if you want to release something, you know, you might want to go outward to release it and then bring it back versus pushing against it to where you want it to be, you know, at the end, like what the end goal is. And anyways, in the, when all was said and done, I probably did like eight months of private PT on, and we took a break in the middle and then restarted and she never took to it, never took to it. We did all kinds of like crawling and wall and Mm-hmm. all kinds of full body exercises. Right. And, and we were really diligent about doing like the exercises with her. She didn't like it. You could tell it was uncomfortable. And so I eventually like stopped, but I then took her to a cranial sacral therapist. And then like 10 days after that took her to it was like seven to 10 days after took her to osteopath, because that's just when I could get an appointment with them. And I'm not joking you when I say within, it must've been 24 hours. She got up she like, and she already was pulling herself to stand, but she wasn't walking independently, just mm-hmm. got up and started walking. And I was like, wild. Right? And then like a couple of days after that, I see her crawling across the couch on all fours <laughs> with the knee finally down, no longer dragging the knee all the way across the yeah. room or anything. And I was like, and a couch is a hard surface to crawl up. I mean, it's, it's soft, yeah. but it's also not stable. Yeah. And I was like telling my husband, I was like, she's crawling, she's crawling on all fours. And he's like, what does it matter? She already can walk. Like she just started walking. What do we care? She's crawling. And I was like, no, dude, nobody cares. You have to understand the importance of crawling. Like, this is why we've invested so much money and time into these services because there's so much like, and I knew I was like, I can't explain it, but I know from my colleagues and right. I know there's so much like integration that happens and crossing of midline and just all these different skills that are so highly dependent on crawling. So as an SLP, I was beside myself when they saw it, saw they pulled it out, but I was like, I will never do it justice if I try to explain why I'm beside myself. So that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And like to take it really though, I can't emphasize like, like how important it is and the symmetry that it creates in the body. And when the symmetry isn't there, how the body compensates and the kid gets into these motor patterns that are like, you see like a result of also their anatomy. And if they're not moving in these different points of direction and they're not, we don't walk like robots, right? We're not stiff. Like there's always minimal rotation with whatever we're doing that starts in our most proximal part of our body, which is in our hips and in our core. And when someone, like when you don't develop your core, you're literally like, you're as if it's a tree, it's like hollow and like rotten inside. Like how are the branches gonna be supported? And I'm super concerned about it. And I feel like people are gonna dismiss it and it's gonna be a really huge thing that we're going to see for generations to come of like, okay, now so many kids potentially could have like, did like not dyslexia, but potentially like letter reversals for an extended period of time. Reading is going to be really hard. The speed of their reading crossing midline with their ocular motor skills. It's just so foundational for so many things. And like you were saying, like the bilateral coordination and the integration of all of it. And like even auditory processing, like information going from one side of your ear to the other. And like the corpus callosum is going to start to atrophy, which is the last thing you need, which is in the center of your brain. Right. I call it like the four for anyone from LA or the West coast, like the four five, right. It's this like major highway that is like everybody's on it. And if it's like, when that thing is, if the, if the four or five goes to three lanes, 
all the cars slow down all the messages in their brain are going to slow down. Like from a speech perspective, like what if someone's talking in the right ear and it needs to go to the left side of the brain where all the language centers are like, I, I can't, I'm barely no, I love it. around it. And it's, it's going to bleed into so many facets of development. And I just feel like it's a huge, huge disservice to kids. And I don't, the intention of flagging kids earlier, I don't think is really, the, I, I don't know if that's like valid. I just, I don't, I don't think, think I don't think so. Yeah. And I don't think that it makes any sense. And I mean, there's just so many like, neurological ripple effects of this. And then the musculoskeletal too, as well. Like kids are going to have upper extremities that are going to be so useless. Like these kids who aren't going to crawl and everyone says it's fine are not going to be able to pick up scissors. They're not going to be able to cut things. It's going to be really difficult. They're not going to be able to know their tool hand from their stabilizer hand. And they're not going to be able to like rotate the piece of paper and snip at the same time. Cause they've never really had to use the two hands together. The main, the main thing a lot of kids are doing now is like holding an iPad and swiping yeah. and it's not to say like, how are they going to like cut open packages when they're older? Like, how are they going to cut open their Amazon box? Like it's so, um, functionally going to have an, an impact on kids and on the school systems as well, because it's going to like really a lot of kids are going to need more services when we could have just been inter- like intervening earlier. And I think that the government really needs to take a bigger picture on like that and take a step back. Cause this is like essentially going to cost a lot, a lot later down the line. People are going to, lots of kids are going to have more IEPs. They're going to need school-based services. They're not going to be able to pick up the pencil. And it's just, um, I think we're digging ourselves into a hole that's pretty deep. Um, and it's going to impact reading speed, writing, all that. And I just, I don't know. I I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of scared. I don't know. I feel like I I wrote down notes while you were talking before. And I was, I wrote down handwriting eyes, coordination and flat feet slash joints. And because I was like, these are such interesting things that you point out and, and we see this, right. So in like my myo patients, even these are children who are at least four or five years of age, sometimes a bit older and also adults now who are going for vision therapy and vision therapy is hard. That is, I mean, I had a, one of the dentists that I work with, she took her son and then she, and she's talked about this publicly. Um, and she then also put herself through it and she was like, it's exhausting. It is physically taxing on the body. And to see all of these airway issues and myo issues and vision issues, it's all interconnected. And like, I'm getting chills right now because it's, nobody's, I mean, not nobody, but like, we know people talk about it in our space, but nobody else is talking about this. And like, I'm sorry, you need your eyes. I don't care what you do. It, you know, sure. And you know, there's people who are blind who obviously figure out ways to use their other senses and they can function very well in the world. But for those of us who are used to using our eyes, we don't realize how much we depend on them and how much we're impacting our vision and our energy that it takes to use our eyes when, you know, these other areas are impacted and there's just see these compensatory patterns. And I think that it all plays into everything that you're talking about. So when you mentioned that, I was like, yes, yes. These kids shouldn't need myotherapy and vision therapy and, you know, OT, I know OT is usually, I think the vision therapist, there's like a program back um, in the DC Metro area where it's like an OT and a, um, there are, there are a couple, like, I think the wife is an OT and the husband is I want to say, I don't know if he's an ophthalmologist or if he's an optometrist, but they have hmm. developmental optometrist, maybe Yeah, he might be. And they just have this really phenomenal program. And so we've referred a lot of kids to them who needed this. And it's, you know, to see a child need and require so many specialists is it's heartbreaking. Like we want kids to be kids. Like if we can intervene earlier 
and we can prevent them from having to need all of these services, which are both, it's an investment in time and money. Like it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're taking away from that child's, you know, livelihood and their childhood. Now, obviously if they need the therapies, you do them, right? But right. wouldn't it be so much easier to intervene when they're an infant, when they're a toddler, if we know that these issues are happening and we, you know, what I think the CDC guidelines prevent us from doing, it takes mm -hmm. away that opportunity for us to intervene when they're younger. It's like, let's just wait and see if they have a problem and then we can deal with it then. Like, no, yeah. because by that point, you've created such a gap in their learning. Like you're talking about with, you know, we know that children who have delayed speech are more at risk for reading and, and you know, writing issues later on, phonological issues, phonetic issues, um, mm -hmm. phonemic awareness. You know, I'm saying all the wrong words. I was looking for phonemic awareness <laughs> is greatly impacted. Um, this is based on research. This is evidence-based uh -huh. research. You know, it's like, why do, why are we not referencing that in changing these guidelines. And so, you know, it really was frustrating to me to see that not one specialist was included on the committee. Um, yeah. No OTs, no SLPs, no PTs were included, yet these are the developmental milestones that we assess and treat on a daily treat. basis. Like, All the time. Yeah. Yeah. All the so time. it's, um, but the other thing you said too, with the flat feet, I'm sitting here going, yep, yep. I've got flat feet. Yep. Okay. I, have like, you know, my knees turn in, my hips are always like misaligned. I've had a tongue tie that was addressed as an adult. I had, you know, orthodontic relapse, um, but had ortho, you know, when I was younger, um, I've gone to different providers. I've had chiros tell me, oh, one leg is shorter than the other. And then I had the next chiro be like, no, your legs aren't, one's not shorter. Your hips are misaligned. Like, look, when you yeah. align your hips, your legs are the same length. Yeah. Um, but I've had, you said it causes instability and it causes problems with the joints. Well, guess what? I have like a weaker side. My left side is always my side that's prone to injury. I have like sprained this wrist multiple times. And like, if I'm putting, if I like weight bear too much on it or just do it in the wrong way, it like snaps it back into a sprain. Like it just doesn't, you know, and I'll put a splint on for a couple of days. And usually that can get me back on track now if I catch it early, cause I know about it, but that was not an issue when I was younger, it's become more of an adult issue. And then, yeah. and that's like when I've been down on the floor playing with kids that I've like initially caused this issue. And it was all from like leaning on it the wrong way. Um, mm -hmm. I was that kid who my aunt <laughs> described as like the lowest tone baby she'd ever seen mm -hmm. and like really low tone core, very floppy baby hit all of my milestones, but at like the very last second. And my mom was like, you know, I take you to the doctor because you weren't doing X, Y, or Z. And you would literally do it in the waiting room at that appointment. Like you said, <laughs> you said your first word to a stranger, like to a person in the pediatrician's office, you said hi to some woman. And like, you know, you rolled over like in the office while we were waiting to go see <laughs> the, the, um, the pediatric specialist, you, you know, it's just like literally everything happened at the last moment. And like, look, am I a functioning adult? Sure. But I have weak core and that causes other health issues for me. It, it definitely, you know, the tongue tie, the lower tone, you know, tonicity that yeah. it's an ongoing issue. So I'm not going to sit here and lie and say like, oh, life is so easy and everything's great. Yeah. No, like I'm really prone to injury. Even when I exercise to the point yeah. where like now my, um, my PRI trained PT was like, yeah, no, you shouldn't be doing yoga because you're like too hypermobile. Yeah. You need to be focusing on things like Pilates that really focuses on like slower focused exercises okay. to strengthen the core and, you know, mm -hmm. 
And it's very fascinating to see this all play out as an adult. And all I want is for my kids to not have to go through all of this. Like I want their life to be easy and I want them to have like optimal function. And so that's where my passion comes from, because it's like, I was able to identify with my one daughter when she was like, in, you know, 24 months old, the issues and start navigating it then. And yeah. I wish I could have done it even earlier. Right. With my second one, we started at day, like day one. Right. But really day five with her release and everything. And so that's where I'm like, we are failing, failing our children. If really? we are just going to pull out milestones and move them later. And you made a, a point about how they're saying, oh, you know, we're just trying to put it at 70, like 75% of kids should have it now versus 50% of kids. So that it can make identification easier. No, it's actually the opposite. Cause when you right. look at these, when you look at these, if you require even, okay. So if 75% of kids, let's say, okay, let me back up. <clears throat> if 50% of kids should be, let's say using two words together on average, right. By age two. And that means, and you say now, oh no, 75% of kids should be doing that. It sounds good in theory, but that's mm -hmm. not actually what they did. When you look at it, they changed, they pushed back the expectations and the problem with it, even if that is their goal, it's not how it's going to end right. up. It, it's, it's just not realistic. It's not what's actually going to happen because insurance companies don't look at 50%, 75%. They look at the milestones and they go, oh, okay, well, this child doesn't need to be doing that until later because they've now pushed it back to 24 months or 36 months or whatever the case may be. And so they're going to say, yeah, no, we're not qualifying this kid because this is federally funded or this is insurance you know, reimbursement. And so yeah. it's driven by the federal government who's going to say, nope, sorry, you don't qualify. And that, that's what's harmful. I'm you know, yes, I'm very grateful that I can private pay for my children to have services. And we work with a lot of families that do in my practice personally, a lot yeah. of our families do submit to insurance and get reimbursement directly, yeah. but there's a lot of children who are out there who are already at risk of falling behind, who do not have the resources. And this is what angers me most. These are the children who are most at risk for struggling already in school. And we just made that we just S we, we have um, and I say we, because I feel like, like all of us together, like, not that we made these changes, but it's like, this is putting these children at such a high risk, significant exponential. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, like high risk. Yeah. Like they're high risk, but it puts them behind. Like it basically oh, yeah. more behind than where more they delayed. were. Yeah. Right. Well, like yeah. they're way more exponentially at risk, right. A disadvantage. That's the word I was looking yeah. for. It's a much more exponent. They're much more exponentially like disadvantaged compared to their same age peers, whether we're talking about a two month old or we're talking about a three-year-old. And yeah. so my passion comes from like, we need to make sure that these guidelines are accurate and that they're understood properly and that they're implemented properly. And if you truly are going to say, oh, well, 75% of kids should be doing this by this age. You didn't, you didn't back up the guidelines. You push them forward and pushing them forward. Like meaning like we expect them at a later age, you know, that's putting these kids behind. So anyways, I hope that makes sense. No, no, it makes total sense. And the thing is, is what, what the, like, I think one of the things that like the science behind it is that we know that 80% of the brain is developed by age three. Right. And then it's just like insane to keep pushing this back, these milestones. Cause then it's, we're losing precious six month periods yeah. where they could be in therapy that they could be getting skilled services that they should be like entitled to funding from the government or from the school district, or if the parent, if they're lucky enough to have parents who can play pay privately yeah. where we could be building these skills and these motor, these neurons, like when these 
aren't developed at that point in time, just like after five, like, it's not that we can't make progress. The brain's a beautiful thing. Neuroplasticity is there, but the difference, the significant difference that you could do before age three until waiting until age three or three and a half or four is so huge. That window is really critical. And for us to just kind of be, for them to be kind of like, oh, we're just going to push it back and wait and see, it doesn't do anyone any, like, and it doesn't do anyone any good. The kids losing out on services, the therapist has now has way more work to do. And then the, the funding, the funding person or whoever it is, is going to have to pay a lot more in the long run. I don't see how this is going to help any system or any society at all. And I, you know, I, this is something I should have researched before. And I, I really would love to see kind of how like other countries are kind of like talking about this. You know what I mean? Where like medicine is kind of a thing, like it's just incorporated. I just like, I really, I just don't think that this is going to help anybody in the long run. And it's causing a lot more work. And we're not even going to really see the effects of this until like a few years from now. And I think the language is super misleading. And I think that it's going to confuse a lot of people. I don't think it's going to be implemented correctly. I think that it undermines like the importance of just overall like human nature. And I feel like nature doesn't make mistakes, um, you know, and for us to kind of just be like, oh, well, you know, it's not important anymore. Don't worry about it. Like that's not no crawling's there for a reason. And if you don't have the acute eye to see the importance of that, that's, you shouldn't be making these shots, calling these shots. And that's a, I think that's the thing that's just in the whole system of itself. Like it's really as therapists, like we don't diagnose, but we're the ones who like treat the things so intimately. And it's just kind of like, we should have, they should have been consulting with therapists, the people who really are treating these things. And I, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just nervous for everything. And I, I don't know. I feel like so many muscles are going to be underdeveloped, especially the eyes and the hands, which are the smallest muscles in the entire body. They're the fastest to fatigue. Kids are going to have to go like, imagine the social repercussions of this. Like you were saying, like kids don't need to be in myo and then vision therapy and then OT. Like, when is she going to be in Girl Scouts? Like, when is she going to have like a fun time? Like, when are they going to play with their friends? And it's like, yeah, I'm, it's not a good thing. I don't think this is putting us in any like right direction. And I feel like a lot of the issues are going to um, really come up in the school system a lot. That's where it's really going to, they're going to have to rethink this. And then how long is it going to take from the change? 20 years this took, right? This has been a last time this was touched about 20 yeah. years. Ago. Yeah. I think it's been 20 years. Yeah. yeah. So like, mm-hmm. okay. Like what's that? 2042, if it's going to change again, like, unless we like, there's a huge army of us doing something, which I would love to like do, or like, you know, but all therapists are so busy. People are burnt out. Like it's a population of clinicians who like, not everyone has the bandwidth. A lot of now there's social media and people have platforms, social like uh, platforms to speak on, but it's also like a, a really small army of people that can't really like, I mean, I don't know, like there's AOTA, like there's not huge involvement in it. Like ASHA there is, but like, it's a hard group of people also to kind of like, they don't have a ton of funding and they also don't have the bandwidth. Like they're in the trenches treating. And now we're going to be even more like treating. It's just not as an OT, like it's, yes, you want to be, you want to have a career and everything like that. But like, I don't want to be busy with kids who shouldn't be in my office. This could have been prevented. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's just kind of like now, it's going to be every kid's going to need OT. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. No, no it's, one's able I mean, to pick up a pencil. It's like, okay, great. Okay. <laughs> skip crawling. It's fine. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah. I think that we're seeing such a drastic change towards delays and so many kids having just something they need to work on in, in at least one domain that it's almost like they tried to normalize it. Right. And we're here. Yeah. We are saying that common doesn't mean normal. 
there's so much that we can do that doesn't always mean that you need high levels of therapy. But if you address these things, when these children are infants or toddlers and get them on track and close those gaps, like it could be very minimal intervention, right? It could even possibly be happening in the classroom if we're educating teachers properly on like, Hey, when to flag, if there's a really a bigger issue and Hey, here are the skills that we should be working on. And, you know, I know like my daughter's preschool teachers do a phenomenal job of looking at milestones and knowing that at three years of age, like these kiddos should be cutting. Right. But some of them aren't because they weren't in school the prior year, or, you know, we were in a pandemic. And so they're working really hard to like close gaps for, you know, some of the kids. And it's something that I've made a point of like working on some of these skills at home, just because I'm exposed to it. So I know the importance of holding, uh, you know, a chunky, pencil or, um, a chunky crayon when they're younger and making, moving that to like, you know, the shorter ones and moving it to, you know, eventually over time, moving it to the thinner, like you, you know, the, the normal crayons, if you will, yeah. um, yeah. for lack of a better word. And then traditional crayons. I don't like the word normal, um, <laughs> and, you know, and then just looking at like how they hold the pencil and how they cut and how they hold the paper when they cut and all these, and like how they turn the paper and hand-eye coordination and just all these things that my OTs in my practice have taught me over the years where Lily also thankfully had like really advanced, like fine motor skills. And so I watched what she did and remember like my OT looked at her at one point and she was like, yeah, no, like she's good. You don't have to worry about anything. She's got advanced, like gross motor and fine motor skills. I was like, great. Can we, can we, you know, (laughs) <laughs> can we, can we have that like carry over to the oral motor skills? That would be wonderful. Um, but she was so tight through her body that it was preventing yeah. that. So anyways, oh. but yeah, with my second one, like just, you know, knowing like what they should do based on the guidelines, based on the milestone charts. Like I have a milestone chart that I talked about in the episode where I recorded from 2014. It mm-hmm. is, you know, obviously not something I've done research on, but look, we, this is what we work with. We work with these kids, SLP and OT, you know, services, these kids who need these between birth to five years of age. And we even have some kids like who are a little bit older as well, um, for like the more traditional therapy. And then we have our feeding kids and our myo kids. And Mm -hmm. so we're doing a whole gamut of these, the therapy that you would see on these milestone charts, like where is this kiddo now? And it's very interesting because a lot of them have splinter skills, right? A lot of them have like certain skills in certain areas and you're like, why can they do that? But they can't do this. Right. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to try and just work on these things and close that gap for them. But the earlier you intervene, the less therapy they usually need. And the more it sets them up so that they don't fall off the milestone chart going forward. Right. And it's like, we really need that, that approach. Like that's exactly what you're basically saying here. Um, and so I referenced that chart and that's the chart that I was using to speak on the podcast I recorded about like the speech language, you know, milestones. And then I looked at one of my other things for the oral motor and it's just, it was, it was like, I was so angry. I was so fired up. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like it is well established that children do X, Y, and Z by certain ages in the speech language world. And to just randomly go and change this and then like cite Asha as the platform that you base this off of, like, no, I'm sorry, my milestones match, which on, which what's on Asha's website. And I think that's actually why like Asha went and they They are, they did make a statement to the public and they said that they are addressing this directly, which was wonderful because they don't always come forward that quickly. So I was like, Oh good. My dollars are finally getting spent. Well, so I'm patiently waiting to see like, yeah, what comes of that. But 
you know, I'm like, that's the only reason why I feel like a bunch of us have, we've talked about like maybe putting something together and writing this, you know, together. But I'm like, if we can get Asha to make some headway, like, and then we can support that mission. So it's cohesive. I'm like, I would love to see where that goes, but yeah, Yeah. it's very frustrating. It's so, and it's just unfortunate at this point. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. And I think, I think I'm, I'm really happy to hear that about Asha. I haven't heard, I, maybe I'm like missed it though, but for AOTA, if they're doing anything like that, but it's, um, I feel like it needs, yeah, people need to like really address this. It's, it's a, there's huge ramifications if we don't huge. And I just, yeah, from sensory perspective, motor perspective, oral motor, all the things. And I feel like it's just going to cost us a lot of time and like money later. And it's not going to help with like human evolution at all. I really don't. So yeah, no, yeah. we're on the same page. Well, thank you for joining <laughs> me today and chatting about these milestones and sharing the OT Absolutely. you know, side of things, because it's, I think we need to have these conversations because we do have a lot of parents who listen to the podcast. We also have a lot of providers who are going to be like, oh, wow. Like I didn't realize how, you know, I know I heard the noise, but I didn't really get it. Well, here yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it, it affects everything. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's just, it's, yeah, it's a, well, it, we'll get it sorted, I hope. So, yeah. 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 The goal <laughs> is to get this sorted out, get things back to where they should be. And in the meantime, we will keep working from the old milestones in my practice because yeah. I'm not on board with this new change and what they're trying to push through. Totally. It's agreed. So, yeah. Well, thank you again for joining me. This was fun. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these myotots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan, and you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 